GPS spoofing is very different. It's a, it's a much more insidious problem because it retains the, the operator's trust in their gear. And that GPS spoof GPS is also what things like your inertial nav calibrate off of periodically. So before you realize anything's going on, not only is your GPS slightly off, right? But now your inertial nav is infected by that as well. Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the final part of a two-part series how tech and data are playing a more essential role in military operations, and the threats that services face as adversaries narrow the U.S.'s technological lead. It's Thursday, February 8th, 2024. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast, where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. The Department of Homeland Security is launching a hiring sprint to build a team of 50 artificial intelligence experts for its new AI Corps, it announced Wednesday. The AI Corps is modeled after the U.S. Digital Service and housed within DHS's Office of the CIO. Its experts will support the use of the technology across the agency, such as efforts to counter fentanyl, combat child sexual exploitation and abuse, deliver immigration services, secure travel, fortify critical infrastructure, and enhance cybersecurity. The announcement comes as federal agencies across the government have been working to implement the budding technology and develop their own guardrails for things like generative AI. President Joe Biden's AI executive order also put an emphasis on the technology, including efforts to hire AI talent in the federal government. Eric Heisen, DHS's CIO and chief AI officer, said in an announcement that now is the time for experts to make a real difference in our country and join the federal government. In other news, a new bill from Senators Mark Warner and John Thune would have the National Institute of Standards and Technology develop cybersecurity guidance for drones used by the government. The legislation, which is called the DETECT Act, could eventually lead to binding rules for federal agencies that use civilian drones based on the NIST guidelines. It also has other components, including directions for the Office of Management and Budget to test those guidelines with one federal agency and to implement reporting guidelines for drone security vulnerabilities. Federal agencies would also be forbidden from buying drones that don't meet the guidelines without a waiver. It's not the first time the two senators have taken action on drone technology. A previous proposal called the Increasing Competitiveness for American Drones Act would have improved the Federal Aviation Administration's process for dealing with the technology, which Warner and Thune have argued is opaque and sluggish. You can read more about these stories and much more at fedscoop.com. Today, we're back with part two of a two-part interview with Egan Rinderer, chief technologist for Shift 5 and a former operator for the U.S. Navy. In part one of the conversation, we discussed a new round of bonuses the Air Force recently authorized worth up to $600,000 to retain existing manned aircraft and drone pilots, combat systems operators, and air battle managers, and how the challenges the service is facing in keeping airmen on board go beyond money. For the second part of our conversation, we get deeper into the role that tech plays in the U.S. military's shifting competitive landscape to focus on great power competitors and the new threats services face like GPS spoofing and small-scale drones. Let's pick up the conversation now where we left off in the first episode. So it, it sort of dawns on me we're having this conversation and, and we haven't really addressed what an adversary might be able to do in, in, in terms of, you know, this equation of, of, of uptime and maintenance and emission capability, what happens when you add an adversary into that equation and how they can use advanced tech to sort of interfere with that or, um, you know, yeah. do, do something to affect it in some way. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I think um, we tend, when we think of adversarial actions, we, we tend to think of Hollywood, right? So, you know, airplane is flying and it gets hijacked in the air. Is that a concern? Yeah, it is. Uh, at least it should be. Um, people should be cognizant of the fact that these platforms were built. Uh, they, they, all the components talk over serial buses. Those serial buses don't have a sense of security uh, built into them. It's very much this idea of security through obscurity. Um, you know, we we spent the last thirty years paying for the <laughs> paying for that in the, the enterprise IT world because we sort of took that approach back in the eighties didn't work out well for us. Um, and we're sort of repeating the sins of the past there. There's good reasons for that. Um, you know, if you, you think about the priorities on something like an airplane, you need the message to get from the flight management system to, a, you know, flight surface controller or something very, very fast, right? Uninterrupted security tends to slow things down and, and cause like, you know, in the enterprise IT world, you have this idea of, well, TCP has, um, it has conventions built into it to accommodate that, right? It can do retries and, um, it, you know, it, it will retransmit packets if they don't make it. You don't get that luxury uh, when you're moving a stick on an aircraft and the digital signal needs to get to a flight service. Uh, so security is just sort of left out um, almost intentionally. Uh, okay, like we know that um, it's going to be that way for a while because you don't just wholesale change the uh, the bus architecture on something like an aircraft that takes decades to come up with a new architecture and a new protocol and all of that sort of thing. Um, so what we have to be concerned about is not just sort of that Hollywood diehard scenario, but really if I'm a savvy adversary, all I want to do is keep your aircraft on the ground when you need to put them in the air. And the easiest way to do that is to create maintenance issues for you, or at least the appearance of a maintenance issue. Um, there are lots and lots of ways to do that. Some are very exotic. Um, some are very uh, almost uh, ham-fisted. Uh, none of them are terribly difficult, unfortunately, uh, for us. Um, those points of entry can be sort of old school, like what you would think, you know, infect a maintenance laptop, use that as a proxy. The maintenance laptop gets connected to the aircraft. Um, causes some uh, persistent problem that looks and feels very much like a maintenance issue. And that maintenance issue becomes a persistent problem across the fleet, right? And um, there are, you know, we, we obviously have to be a little cautious with discussions of things like that, but there are ways that are, an adversary can do that, um, that can be triggered, uh, you know, that can, you know, at the right place, right time, suddenly I've, I've got this outbreak of major maintenance issues across my fleet and I can't get aircraft in the air. Um, that then creates a supply chain backlog because now I need 40 of this part where historically I've needed, you know, maybe two a year or something, um, you know, and, and now it's going to be months before I can get these things fixed, whatever the case may be. Um, our adversaries are very savvy. Um, I think that there is a, a huge amount of research going on within PRC and, and um, you know, some, uh, not quite as much elsewhere, but certainly there, you know, Russia and, and other um, great powers are, are looking at this as an exploitable attack surface. Um, and so we, we need to be cognizant of the fact that like, look, the, the way that you secure a system that has full and open uh, communication, unencrypted, you know, unsigned, uh, non-authenticated access once you're on the platform to get on the bus and start communicating with other components is to monitor that. And that goes back to that same, like the exact same thing I need for uh, to implement conditions-based maintenance uh, is the visibility and acquisition of that data. 
and then the preparation of that data for both real-time analysis and post-analysis. Um, it's the same data, in fact, right? They're, they're, I think people have this idea that you know, there's such thing as security data and such thing as maintenance data uh, or operational data when you're talking about these platforms. It, it's just data, right? Mm -hmm. It's just the conversations between the devices. The way that you ask the questions, the types of queries, the types of filters, the types of analysis you're doing, the types of ML models you apply to that data are what answer questions about security versus maintenance versus operational use. Um, but it all goes back to doing the necessary instrumentation and um, having the, the complete visibility uh, and awareness of that data on platform uh, in the first place to be able to, to secure and maintain a, a reasonable mission capable rate. So you mentioned, you know, that some of our adversaries or, or some of our, you know, more competitive adversaries are, are Russia or PRC. Um, obviously a bit more advanced and, and could have some capabilities in the electronic warfare space, GPS spoofing, things like that. How does that even further exacerbate this issue? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a couple of comments there, and I'm, I'm, I want to circle back around to PRC specifically, because I think we need to, to take some notes on um, how they're going about this, but let's, let's talk about GPS spoofing um, because it, it's relatively new, um, at least in widespread use, it's relatively new. Uh, what's really interesting is it has exploded. If you, if you Google it, uh, you know, Google it and look at the trend over time, um, the amount of mentions of GPS spoofing in the news over the past 12 months has just exploded. Uh, there's sort of, just like it benefits us, and we, we talked about the, the interesting growth and opportunities um, that are sort of attracting uh, talent uh, from the military into the private sector, that those same convergences of new technologies and the, the opportunity for recombinant innovation by taking different uh, technology advances and putting them together into working solutions um, is also a benefit to our adversaries, right? It's, it's suddenly become affordable to do things that used to be only within the reach of well-funded nation states. Um, and so GPS spoofing is one of those things, right? And you have to contrast it I think a lot of people just sort of lump it in with GPS jamming, right? And they see, well, it's it's GPS. They're just messing with GPS signal. Um, GPS jamming is very different. As a pilot, if I get GPS jammed, I no longer trust my GPS. And I have a, a sort of a tried and true standard operating procedure for what I need to do if I'm getting jammed. GPS spoofing is very different. Um, it's, a, it's a much more insidious problem because it retains the, the operator's trust in their um, their gear. Right. And that GPS spoof GPS is also what things like your inertial nav calibrate off of periodically. So before you realize anything's going on, not only is your GPS slightly off, right, but now your inertial nav is infected by that as well. And slightly off at, you know, 20,000 feet is a lot less of a problem than slightly off when you're coming in for a landing over treetops. Right. So if I can if I can get you to believe you're 200 feet higher altitude than what you actually are, and you're on approach, and you're going to skim the treetops on landing because of the location you're landing at, that could be a, a really really big problem for you. Uh, the same is true if you're on a long you know transit over a you know large open space, water that sort of thing. So <clears throat> we, we're seeing this more and more because the the ability and the technology and the cost to be able to to implement a successful GPS spoofing platform has really become something that's within reach of um, 
just about anybody with the savvy and, uh, you know, let's call it a, a few tens of thousands of dollars, not horribly expensive to do it. Um, but that's, it's not just GPS jamming, right? And it's not necessarily the old school, what we think of as, as EW um, or electronic warfare, where I need a giant truck with, you know, massive power supply and super sophisticated antennas and things like that. And what the PRC did, and, and I think this is interesting, and we really do need to take note of this, the, the PRC within their, um, within their military said, look, EW and cyber warfare are really kind of the same domain. And they viewed cyber warfare as an outgrowth of EW. It's sort of a generational step forward, but they kept the two um, fairly closely combined. And they've actually made, um, including successful cyber warfare in your campaign plan, a part, like you have to do that as, as part of your um, growth through the rank structure uh, within the PRC. So you may be, uh, you know, somebody that's a, an, got command over infantry forces, but you still have to include cyber warfare within your, your battle plan uh, in order to get promoted because they view it like the two are inseparable. It's, it's just part of warfare today. You're, you're going to face that. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that in Ukraine. Uh, we're just starting to see that again in the CENTCOM AOR um, where like we are dealing with legit, uh, you know, because of the small drone use and the ability to deploy a very small form factor sort of off the shelf you know, duct tape and bailing wire together, um, EW capabilities and computer vision capabilities and all this really interesting tech. Um, we're sort of learning the lesson that like, oh yeah, um, you know, cyber warfare is a factor with even these sorts of uh, really exquisite platforms that we're operating. And I think much more so than we realize. Um, and so it, it's, what we need to think about is what's going to come after GPS spoofing. Right. It, it's a huge problem. We need to solve that problem. There are companies that are, are, you know, have made really significant process or progress in a very short amount of time at coming up with solutions and at least identification to say, look, early warning, your GPS is being spoofed. You need to do something to keep it from infecting your inertial nav, you know, throw the breaker, whatever you got to do, come up with an SOP until you get out of the area where the spoofing is happening. We need to heat map those things. Um, just like we heat map where SAM locations are, um, we should probably be heat mapping where any other uh, threat to um, safety of flight is, which GPS spoofing is certainly one of those. We map GPS jamming today. Um, but then we also need to be looking, okay, what's next, right? Logically speaking, if we get into an Indo-PACOM conflict, um, GPS spoofing is going to be the tip of the iceberg. We need to think, start thinking about what are the cyber kinetic threats that we're going to face, based on both our own research, uh, as well as our, our counterintelligence and you know what we're learning on, in terms of the types of research that China and Russia and Iran and others are doing, um, and then understanding the attack surface of our platforms and treating it at, as it is, treating it like a computer that has attack surfaces that today are um, open and vulnerable, and we need to, to start getting a sense for that, but we also need to take action and, and get the instrumentation in place so that we have that visibility necessary uh, to be able to start like truly securing and understanding what the, um, you know, the, the impact of the platform is or will be uh, should one of these advanced cyber kinetic attacks take place. All really fascinating stuff. Real quickly, before we close out, you mentioned mm -hmm. uh, 
the the small factor drones that we've seen yeah. obviously pro proliferate in the last decade or so um, in, in Ukraine in in the the CENTCOM AOR as you mentioned um, how is that just adding to the complexity of of this issue for for pilots and others in the military space yeah um, boy this is like you could do you could do a, a multi part podcast on this <laughs> subject alone I think um, honestly and and somebody should on it. Like there's so much wrapped up in this that we need to be talking about. So if you think about the way that we do base defense, um, whether that is a, a permanent location, you know, where we have presence in the Middle East, NAFSENT, someplace like that, or at a forward operating location, uh, you know, we saw the, the impact to uh, the tower 22 location this past you know week ago or so. Um, our, our defenses are very much aligned toward um, knocking down ballistic uh, missiles uh, as well as like group three and above drones. Um, when you start talking about group two, group one, you, you suddenly start finding these gaps in, in our defense. And, and again, don't want to delve into a lot of detail on this, obviously. Um, but look, if it, it doesn't have a heat signature, it doesn't have a large radar um, cross-section. Uh, in fact, maybe almost none, depending on the materials that it's made out of. Um, it's basically silent. It has a fairly sizable payload capacity and it costs so little money that I'll throw 200 of them at you, right? And as long as 10% of them get through, I'm going to do enough damage that I can, you know, there'll be something in the news about it. Probably uh, at least, um, you know, loss of, of material, uh, loss of function, or, and potentially loss of life. I mean, we've certainly seen the efficacy of these things in the Ukraine conflict. Um, we, we have a gap in our ability to, de to deal with those. And, you know, it, like, it's easy to say, well, you know, we can throw um, coyotes rockets at them or something. Now you have this huge uh, asynchronous cost factor, right? It's a $200 drone. I'm knocking it out of the air with multiple, multiple thousand dollar rockets or mm -hmm. you know, tens of thousands of dollars of anti-aircraft defense. Um, it, it, we just don't have a good answer today. And it, that also causes a safety of flight issue because look, it, like if I don't even have to have armed drones, if, if I can just throw, uh, you know, 20, 30 super cheap off the shelf drones and fly them around and cause enough um, chaos in the area that you can't get your fighter aircraft in the air or whatever the, you know, it is that you need to launch. Like it, it's the cheapest denial of service attack that you can imagine. And who cares if they all, you know, get knocked down eventually, like the things are disposable anyway. And, um, you know, I, I think we, we need to take two different approaches on this. One is how do we close the gap in terms of our defensive capability? And it's not just like, Look, directed energy weapons and, you know, lasers and those sorts of things, great. Like, we should absolutely be doing research and development on those. We should absolutely be fielding the things that the big FSIs are coming up with or that some of the interesting tech startups in the defense tech sector are coming up with. Um, with that regard, I, I think there's also a lot of leveraging we can do within the innovation cells, within the DoD that are staffed and the ideas are being um, fed into them by the folks in uniform that are working in the BDOCs and in the places on these forward operating bases um, who are dealing with these drones on a daily basis, like they are pretty close to the problem. And I think there is a lot of good that can come from sort of lending the information that they can feed in 
along with some of the rapid prototyping and rapid ideation capability in the defense tech startup world and the work that the big, you know, the sort of the old school federal systems integrators are doing, it, as is always the case, like getting everybody to sort of work together is tough. Um, we, we talk about that a lot, both in the commercial world and in the, the defense um, industrial base and within the Pentagon themselves. Um, but look, it, it, at no time in history has it ever been more fundamentally required that we do that than now. Um, I don't know that there's another way that we're going to solve this problem if we don't do that, quite frankly. Well, some big challenges, it seems like, that that the military faces. Also, some fascinating thoughts from yourself, Egon. Um, really appreciate the time today. Hopefully, we can do this again soon. But uh, just a, a lot of really interesting points you brought across. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate the time. And um, look, I'm, I'm super pleased that you, you asked me to, to come and chat about this today. And, and hopefully we can, as an industry and as a collective, we can talk more about this as time goes on, because we definitely need to be. You can learn more about tech in the U.S. military at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Adam Butler and Carlin Fisher help put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll be back next week with brand new episodes. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening.